This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, if you would, uh, turn with me with your Bibles in uh, uh, the fifth chapter of Matthew, uh, Matthew 5. Uh, is where the text comes from this morning. We'll read verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> Matthew 5, verse 13. And would you stand? <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come again in the name of Jesus. Lord, uh, again desiring, Lord, that you would enable us to uh, grasp the the truth that's just been read for us. Uh, Enable us to understand the implications that it has for our lives as, as as a church and as individuals. Lord, um, by Your power, the work of Your Spirit, make us salt and light in this world so that others, others may see the reality that we know to be true, the reality of Jesus Christ, the reality of Your redemption. And Lord, so that they may desire You so that they may be brought to repentance, know and love You. Lord, do these things, we pray, for our good and ultimately for Your glory. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We uh, continue in our study in Matthew this morning and um, just finishing, we, we did just finish, the uh, Beatitudes. So I just want to remind us again that we're, we're still in that same context. And, and I want to uh, point that out this way. I hope, hopefully this is what I'll be explaining as, as we... Uh, go through the, uh, the the message here. So I want to kind of give you the sum of it uh, at the beginning. The Beatitudes lay a foundation, I think, for understanding uh, what it means to be salt and light. Now, Jesus uses these metaphors, and of course there's been much discussion over what exactly is meant, and, and I'm going to talk about some of that. In other words, what does He mean that you're salt? Uh, 
What does he mean that you're the light of the world? I think, uh, again, the key to understanding what he means here is keeping in mind the context and what he has already said, and then, of course, what follows that we'll be going through in, in, uh, as we continue the Sermon on the, on the Mount and as we continue the study in Matthew. But, but for now, let me, let me just say it this way. What he says in the Beatitudes, and, and we've talked about this for several weeks, uh, he's describing there characteristics of the Christian, characteristics of kingdom heirs, those who inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, again, we would say Christians, those who are born again, those who are saved. These are the truly happy ones. That's what the word blessed means. It means happy. This is the true way of happiness. So, those who are truly happy are poor in spirit. They, they mourn. They mourn because of indwelling sin and because of the condition of the world. They are meek because of their own spiritual state. Uh, they, they understand that uh, um, they have nothing deserving uh, in and of themselves, deserving of God's favor. They hunger and thirst for righteousness because by God's grace they recognize their own lack. And consequently, they're filled and they're merciful and they're pure in heart and they're peacemakers. And when persecuted, reviled, again, they are happy and rejoice because of the reward that awaits us in heaven. Now, all of, all of those things that we've talked about over the last several weeks that Jesus lays before us in verses 3 through 12, and what He says here in verse 16 concerning good works, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father. All of those things provide, I think, for us an understanding of what He means by you are salt. You are light. You're the light of the world. You're, you're different. The world's not poor in spirit. The world doesn't mourn over sin. The world's not meek. The world is not... Uh, are not peacemakers. These qualities, these attributes are not characteristics of the lost of the world. So Jesus says, you, you believers, kingdom heirs, are salt and light. Therefore, let your light shine that they may see your good works And glorify your Father in heaven. Now, first he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And one of the things I want us to notice in both of these statements, you are, the, you are salt and you are light, is that he says to his disciples, and uh, by implication to us, it's applicable to us, you are salt. So, so he's, he's not saying you are, are a provider of salt. You bring salt. You show them where the salt is. <laughs> you, you show them the light, although certainly in a sense that's true. 
It's just not His emphasis here. You bring light into the world. No, you are the light of the world. You are the salt. So He's saying to the believer, to the kingdom heir, to the Christ follower, this is who you are. Now, that's, that's again, emphasizing what we've been saying all along as we've gone through the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying, this is who you are as a child of the kingdom. This is the Christian. Here's, here's what characterizes the Christian. Poor in spirit, mournful, meek, peacemaker, merciful, hunger and thirst for righteousness, happy when persecuted because they value more the reward that lies ahead in glory than the praise of people here and now. This is what characterizes the kingdom heirs. This is you. This is who you are if you're a believer. You are the salt of the earth. Now, let's just think a moment. Why, why does he use these particular metaphors? And I'm, I'm going to give you what I think are some obvious reasons. And you, and you can read different, uh, different commentators and, or if you've got a study Bible and you've got comments there, and, and you'll see varying descriptions and varying ideas, and, and uh, um, a lot of them helpful. I mean, it just comes at it usually from different aspects, uh, and there, there, there are uh, different ways of applying it. But I'm going to give you a couple here that I think are obvious, obvious ones that Jesus is making reference to. Now, let, just for example, you think about the, the properties of salt. What does salt do? Why would Jesus use salt as a metaphor for His followers? And I'm going to give you two here, uh, maybe three. I mean, the third one's just kind of a, of a really a description of uh, what He's trying to say here. But I'm going to give you two properties. The first is is that it's a preserver, a preservation. Salt preserves. We don't uh, experience this so much, uh, but back before they had, uh, at least, you know, back before they had refrigerators and things like that, <laughs> salt, salt was very important in preserving meat. So in the first century, when Jesus is saying these things, and would have been understood by his hearers the importance of the preserving uh, power of salt in preserving meat. You know, they rub it into the meat to keep it from going bad. So, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there's, there are a couple of implications built into that state, statement I want to point those out because I think they'll help us understand what he's meaning by here. If he's suggesting that we, um, our presence here is, is a God-ordained means of preservation for the world. What, what is he saying? Well, let me, let me point us to these implications. You are the salt of the world implies that the world has a tendency towards rottenness, putrefaction, 
like, like meat. Meat left to itself, given time, becomes rotten. It will, it will go bad. Now, this is the result of the fall and the result of the entrance of sin into the world. The world is cursed. It's broken. So we, we can all see, we can all look around and easily recognize that there's trouble in the world. Contrary to what we would like to believe, what a lot of people would like to believe, or what they say, it does not get better. It's, it's like meat that putrefies with time. Now, this has kind of interested me for a long time. You've probably heard me mention this before, but leading up to uh, and, and at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a great uh, movement in philosophy of, of a uh, positivism, you know, positive outlook concerning the state of man. And so this was widely accepted that things were getting better and we're entering a kind of golden era. This is largely, uh, I think, and many others have, have stated, this is largely uh, due to the widespread acceptance of the theory of evolution. <laughs> and they accepted it not only as a, as a scientific theory, but as a philosophy. And, and they begin to, uh, to think, well, you know, with, with all of the technological advances, with all, with all of the uh, supposed advances in education, that, that maybe could be argued, but there, 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 well, no doubt been some. But with all the advances in education and technology, with all the advances in medicine, with all the advances in communication, so that like we often hear, the world is getting smaller and smaller. With all of these things, modern man is evolving to a mature state. And we're headed for this era, this time, when things like war, disease, poverty will all be things of the past. Through technology, through dialogue, uh, we'll, we'll be able to put all those things behind us because man is evolving. Things are getting better and better. And circumstances seem to bear that out because, again, all of the, the, the technological advances that were going on at the time The 20th century the 20th century um, just kind of destroyed that whole argument for the most part, with things like the rise of well, the first war, world war and then the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich. And it's often been called the bloodiest century in history. And so even secular men, uh, many of them anyway, uh, could see that things aren't getting better. So the world has a tendency to become rotten. 
But but all of this, this this positive view of man, the idea that there is hope for man, because hope is man, is contrary to the picture that the Bible paints for us. According to the Bible, man is sinner. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the world is broken. There's suffering. There's corruption because of the influence of sin. And every man who looks to himself or to his own goodness finds no real help. It's because man is the problem. The heart of man is deceitful. Wicked. Just like before the time of the flood, Moses tells us God looked at the earth and saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So bad that the Lord said He was sorry that He had made man and He was grieved in His heart. Now, this is the biblical picture, and I would submit it's much more accurate <laughs> than that of the evolutionist. This is God's assessment concerning the world and mankind, deceitful to the core. Wars and rumors of wars continuing until the end. Disease, poverty, corruption, all kinds of corruption in every arena, political, social, and governments. Corruption among every class, rich and poor. In every institution of man, governmental structures, education, judicial systems, law enforcement agencies. Nothing that man touches is exempt from the corruption because man himself is rotten. So Jesus says to his followers, you are salt. You will provide a preserving influence in the world. So the first implication is that the world has a tendency to rottenness. I mean, that's, that's where it goes. It, it, it putrefies. The sec- second implication is this. That Christ followers, that is Christians, are different. We're different from the world. Now, I never thought of myself as a big salt eater. I've never been one of those people that had to had to lay on the salt heavily when I when I ate something. Sometimes a little bit of salt on French fries or you know baked potato. That's about it. So I never thought of myself as a big salt eater. Um, when Leslie began to intentionally uh, make bland food. You know, leave the salt out. Uh, I, I begin to see myself how important salt is and, and how it's missed. It's it's changes the whole 
flavor. Christians are different. We're not like the world. We cannot be if we're truly born again. If the Spirit of God dwells in us, if we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus and by the washing of the water of His Word, if we have tasted of the heavenly gift, if we've been made partakers of the divine nature, if His seed remains in us, as John said, then we're different. We're different than the world. Now, again, this is what Jesus has been describing all the way through the Beatitudes. Every attribute, every quality that He describes there, the meekness, the mercifulness, pure in heart, poverty of spirit, those are attitudes or dispositions or, attitude, or, or uh, um, qualities that are diametrically opposed to those of the world. Christians are different. That's what he's saying. Where the world tends to rottenness, to putrefaction, the Christian has a preserving influence. You are the salt of the earth. Now, another quality of salt is, uh, I alluded to a moment ago, is the flavor. That is, it seasons. Now, these, these are functions of the Christian. You're, you're salt and you're light. Salt preserves. Salt seasons. If salt is not present in the food, it's, it's missed. If it is present in the food, it, it adds flavor. Salt seasons. Well, how, how do we season? Well, again, think of the attributes that he's already described in the Beatitudes and how different they are from those of the world. We've got a different nature. We've got a otherworldly mindset which manifests again in attitudes and dispositions and works, conduct. And because of that, we have a positive effect on Society, a preserving effect and a seasoning effect. Think for a moment, if you're here today as, as uh, born again, saved, and you think about your life now in Christ and think about your life before Christ, without Christ, do you, do you think of that as an experience that you savor? Life had no seasoning. Christians add seasoning to the world, to society. Through righteous living. Again, this is implied in the Beatitudes. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, really stated in verse 15, or 16 rather. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Our values are not the same as the world. We have different interests. We, we live for, we exist for, for example, the glory of God. 
And that, that's the ultimate goal of every Christian. That God is glorified in all that I do. That my life is spent for God's glory. That's, that's a different goal from the world. Heirs of the kingdom, Christ followers have a passion for lost souls. I mean, these are our interests. They, they differ from the world. The glory of God. The salvation of the lost. This is where the time and the resources of the Christian are spent. Reaching the lost. Rather than a pursuit of possessions, or position, or comfort. Christ's follower, the kingdom heir, is in the world, but not of the world. He's otherworldly minded. And in that fact, the way that it manifests, we provide seasoning, flavor for the world. Also, our own sanctification as, as we live in this world, as, as, as we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, and as God, by His grace, makes us more and more like Christ. He molds us into the image of Christ. And I've stated this before, but it's worth state, stating again. That, that, again, is the essence of all that Jesus is saying here. In other words, when we talk about the characteristics of the Christian in all of these attributes, meek, merciful, pure in heart, and so forth, he's, he's describing being like himself, being like Jesus. Insofar as the Christian is like Jesus, he is displaying these attributes. So salt is a preserver, and salt seasons. And Jesus says, you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, I, let me. I, I think what Jesus is doing here is stating the impossibility of salt losing its flavor. In other words, if you're just like, again, like we've mentioned as we've gone through the Beatitudes, if you are saved, if you're a kingdom heir, then you are poor in spirit. If you are saved, you mourn. If you are saved, you are meek. If you are saved, you hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. You're the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You can salt the meat... But you can't salt the salt, right? If, if it does lose its flavor, it's just no good. Good for nothing but to be thrown out, trampled underfoot. It, it provides no useful service. Let me read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon in regard to this statement. He says, Christ speaks of those whom He enrolls in His kingdom. In their character, there is a preserving force to keep the rest of society from utter corruption. If they were not scattered among men, the race would putrefy. But 
if they are Christians only in name, and the real power is gone, nothing can save them. And they are of no use whatever to those among whom they mingle. There is a secret something, which is the secret of the believer's power. That something is savor. It is not easy to define, but yet it is absolutely essential to usefulness. A worldling may be of some use. Now, there he's referring to a lost person. A worldling may be of some use, even if he fails in certain respects. But a Christian who is not a Christian is bad all around. He is good for nothing and utterly useless to anybody and everybody. A Christian in name only is really not a Christian at all. And he provides no flavor, no savor, no preserving power. He's useless to no one. Into nothing. And again, I think, I think that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. Salt provides useful qualities. Salt preserves. Salt provides flavor. If it doesn't, it's good for nothing. As if to say it's not salt at all. Continues that thought when he moves to the next... Metaphor, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Can't be hidden. It's an impossibility. Nor do they light a lamp, put it under a basket, but a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So, salt preserves and salt flavors and light illuminates, exposes. Defines a contrast. If you had if you had never seen light and you existed in total darkness, then you you wouldn't have a a real grasp or concept of the difference, right? And you've never known anything but darkness. But once there is light, then immediately a contrast is realized. The darkness is exposed, so to speak. In fact, dispelled. So, Christians in the world, as the light of the world, provide a contrast. Again, because we're different. Because light cannot be concealed, and it's not meant to be concealed. It's meant to be displayed. It's meant to be uh, elevated in a house so that all in the house can see. Light provides an environment for vision. So that those who only knew darkness before once exposed to the light, can now see the difference. Because light illuminates. And Jesus says again to His believers, you are the light of the world. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, really. That he, would, that he would say this about His followers... Jesus Himself, in the ultimate sense, is the light. We, we are a light somewhat in the sense, uh, same sense as the moon is. The moon provides light at night. A full moon 
provides a good bit of light. But the light is not inherent. It's not, it's not produced by the moon, not emanating from the, from the moon. It's not, uh, the, the moon doesn't have that, that quality to be able to light things up. It just reflects. And that's the sense in which we are light, but light nevertheless. But Jesus would be uh, more closely represented in the sun. He produces light. He is the light. He's the light of the world. But yet again, He does say that about us. You are the light of the world. You provide illumination because of our relationship in and with Him. This is a characteristic. This is a quality. This is a function of believers. You are salt. By God's design, by God's grace, you provide a preserving influence for society. And you are light. You illuminate so that people can see so that they can see a difference, so that they can see a contrast. And there has to be a difference, doesn't there? If there's not, like we already read about the salt, then it's totally useless. That is, as Spurgeon pointed out, a Christian in name only provides no service whatsoever. A nominal Christian is a Christian that's one in name only. You, you, claim, the, you claim Christ, you claim to know Christ, but what's missing? The qualities, the characteristics, the poverty of spirit, the pureness of heart, the meekness, the mercifulness, the good works that he mentions in verse 16. If all of these things are absent, then there's no Christianity at all. Like salt that has lost its savor, or like light that is hidden. It provides no useful service. Salt is meant to affect, to influence. Light is meant to affect, to illuminate. So, Jesus says in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men. Now, what He's, what he's not saying here is... Uh, <clears throat> Put on a show. That is, seek the applause of men. Seek the approval of men. He's saying, let, let the attributes of God, characteristics that are produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, be a conduit so that they flow in and through you and affect the world around you. Don't hinder the light. Don't, don't hinder the effectiveness of the salt. Let your light shine. And how, how does it do that? How does it shine? How does that manifest? Christians have a, a aura about them so that they walk around and everybody goes, wow, look at that. That guy just glows. Sometimes you hear people say that, but really they're... They're meaning that metaphorically. But there's no literal aura, right? So what does he mean? Let, let your light shine. Well, he tells us what he means. Your, your life is to be characterized by good works. Good works. Your, your, the good works that manifest in your life are produced by 
the disposition, the otherworldly mindset that again he describes in verses 3 through 12 in the Beatitudes. And those attitudes or qualities or dispositions in turn are produced by the work of the Holy Spirit Himself within us. Simply put, if God dwells in you, it makes a difference. You're different from the world. You're not like the world. You don't pursue the same things. You don't love the same things. You don't do the same works. You're different because of the power of God in you. Because His seed remains in you. Because His Spirit operates in you to will and to do His good pleasure. There's a difference. So He says, let your light shine. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, what would you say, and I, I, I mentioned this earlier, just kind of in passing. But what would you say, just, just generally speaking of our, let, let's just narrow it to our society, not necessarily speaking about the whole world, but, but we're familiar with our surroundings, with our culture, with our country, our uh, traditions. Just generally speaking, what would you say the world is pursuing? Where would you say their, their interest lies? <clears throat> what is it that they get excited over? What is it that they invest time and money into? Now, you, could, you could name a, a myriad of things, couldn't you? Everything from sports to all forms of uh, illicit sexuality and perversions. Things like career, pursuit of position, prominence in society, comfort. That one would probably go across the board pretty much, wouldn't it? I mean, you've got people in all different stages of life or you know, different statuses, societal statuses, but pretty much everybody's pursuing comfort in some way. You can name things like uh, drugs, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. What is the world pursuing? And then ask, ask this question. What am I pursuing? What is, what is my ultimate goal? What, what means more to me than anything else? Where does my time go? Where does my money go? What am I looking to accomplish? Well, whatever the answer may be in our individual cases, <clears throat> Jesus gives us the right answer. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This, this is behind it all. Jesus is saying all of these things that I've put out before you here are characteristics of the true Christian. 
These are the attitudes. This is the mindset. These are the desires of the true Christian. And then over here, here's the function of the true Christian. They are salt and light in the world. They have an effect on the society around them. And it's all for a purpose, he's saying in verse 16. And the purpose is to glorify God. The Christian is different. And not just for the sake of being different, but for the sake of, being, of bringing rather, glory to God. For the sake of giving glory to God. That is, God has put us in the world as salt and light, Yes, to one extent, for the sake of the world, that is, again, we, pro- we provide, by God's grace, we provide a preserving influence on society. Again, I think that can be borne out easily if you look at history and if you look at, even today, at different cultures. Where, where are the darkest cultures you can think of in the world today? They are in those places, I would submit to you, they are in those places where the gospel has had the least influence. Or no influence in some places. Those are the darkest portions of the world. So, Christians are in the world to provide a preserving effect, to provide a a, uh, flavoring effect, giving the true meaning and purpose of life. Ultimately, all of this is for God's glory. God's glory. Christians are different in that sense. That's what we're here for. Because all of those other things, I ask, just generally speaking, what would you say the world is in pursuit of? And we named several examples. But it could all be summed up by saying self-glory. Everybody's out for that. Some people try to do it through drugs. Some people try to do it through accumulating possessions. Some people try to do it through achieving a a certain status. You know, maybe be a CEO or a socialite. But they all have ultimately one thing in common. Self-glory. Self-satisfaction. But the Christian is characterized by a desire to glorify God in all that he does. You let your light shine, not so that everybody can pat you on the back and say, boy, what a great person you are, but so that they glorify God, so that they see the reality of the gospel, so that they look at you and not only, not only hear from your mouth, I'm changed, my chains are gone, I'm free, but so they see it in your life. And they look at you and they say, yes, the gospel is real. You think for a moment, many times even uh, Jesus' strongest opponents, I'm, I'm not saying they gave in and believed, but they could not deny the reality. Something was there Just for example, they could not deny the reality of the miracles. He was salt and light in the world. And amazingly, he says the same is true of us. You are salt and light. So let your light 
shine for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, everything that we've mentioned here, true of the Christian life, is true because of Your work within us. Lord, we're thankful that You produce in us what we cannot produce ourselves. The desires, the values that we've talked about here, the good works, would all be alien to us were it not for Your grace. Lord, we pray and thank You for continued grace, enabling us to Let our lights shine. Not for our sake so that we can be applauded, but for the sake of those around us who need to know You. And so that You are glorified. And Lord, we pray that... We pray that You enable us to do just what, we, what we're talking about here, Lord. Make, make this our passion to live for Your glory, to live in such a way that in all things, small and large, our ultimate design would be to see You honored and glorified. And Lord, that our hearts would be so taken up in that passion, that calling, that we would be willing to lay aside, shake off every hindrance. In those ways that we look like the world rather than like Christ, we ask for Your pruning work. Lord, that You open our eyes to things that we need to let go of, that we need to get rid of. Fill up our vision with Jesus, Lord, so that we look at Him, look to Him, desire to be like Him. Again, so that in all things You are honored and glorified. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Dismiss. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.